Hello, you're listening to the Medical Protection Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. John Marwick. Today's Case Files podcast is titled, When Doctors Fall Out. Uh, today, I'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Priestley. Stephen's an experienced emergency physician based in Brisbane, Australia, uh, with a broad experience at the director level in public hospitals across both Victoria and Queensland. He's a member of the Cognitive Institute team that runs workshops for organisations on issues around professionalism in practice. We're going to base a discussion around an actual case that happened a few years ago, where a difficult relationship between two doctors resulted in serious damage to a patient. A surgeon and an anaesthetist had long-standing relationship problems and rivalry, and as a result, communicated poorly. A 35-year-old patient was undergoing surgery in the thigh to address a congenital vascular lesion. During the operation, the surgeon used tactile stimulation of a nerve that might be damaged during the procedure in order to ensure that it was not the sciatic nerve. When there was no muscular reaction to the stimulation, he assumed the nerve was the peroneal and not the sciatic, and he continued with the procedure. However, the anaesthetist had noticed the patient had muscle spasms during induction and had so had given a dose of muscle relaxant to prevent any movement in the surgical field. The sciatic nerve was damaged. The patient suffered a persistent foot drop and he sued both clinicians. The anaesthetist insisted he had informed the surgeon, and the surgeon was equally convinced he had not been informed. To illustrate this case, we have dramatised the discussions between each of the doctors and their respective MPS medico-legal consultants. Let's start by listening to those discussions. Right. So I can see in the case notes here that Dr. Murray failed to notify you of the muscle relaxant he administered just after induction, I believe. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, please? Sure. As I said earlier, I attempted tactile stimulation to determine the compromised nerve or branch of the perineal nerve. There was no contraction. So logically, I continued to operate on the vascular lesion. At absolutely no point did Dr. Murray inform me that he'd administered the muscle relaxant. Very typical of him. I I don't always do this, but I knew that Mr. Smith would be irritated if there was any movement during the surgery. So I gave a small dose of muscle relaxant to prevent this. And, of course, I documented this too and notified him at the time as well. Thank you, but I, I don't seem to have any information on that. Can you tell me a little bit more, please? Right. I'm sure I mentioned that in my first call. I told Mr. Smith at the time, straight after the induction when the patient was being draped, there's no way he didn't hear me. Ask any of the theater nurses. Okay, so, thank you for those details. You've just said that was typical of Dr. Murray. What do you mean by that exactly? (laughs) Well, this isn't the first time he's tried to pin something on me. Ask anyone who's had to work with him. I mean, if he'd look up once in a while from those checklists, people might actually listen to him. I expect he wasn't paying any attention. He never gets involved in the timeout checklist process, or anything for that matter. Thinks it's all a waste of time, so far as I can see. He's dishonest, too. What he says and what's happened are two totally different things. And he 
walks over everyone at that hospital. It's not the first time he's been in the neck deep either. So, what now? What are we going to do about all this? Okay, right. Thank you for sharing that. The details and history just shared are very important. But I'll still need you to draft a statement for me before we can move on here. A statement? Really? Isn't this conversation enough? Sorry, Dr. Murray, but this matter will be going to court. I'll send you an email with some points for you to write against. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, John. Thank you for the invitation. So we've just listened to that dramatisation of this case, and uh, you're aware of the the things that happened. What do you make of it? Oh, it's, well, it is. It's quite a remarkable case. I think, although it wouldn't be the only time that these sorts of um, interpersonal conflicts have have uh, got in the way of delivering good care. I guess what struck struck me to start with is why would they work together? Um, you know, why would someone who doesn't get on with someone else uh, work with someone else that they just can't get on with? Mind you, I guess over the years, you know, I've been in health for 35 years, I haven't always got on with everybody that I work with, as you you wouldn't be surprised to hear that. There's some people I actually do um, dislike. But uh, the point here, I guess, is actually to be able to put those things aside. This is, this is a feature of professionalism. You know, professionalism uh, in delivering care to patients and, or families, of course, requires us to put those things aside in the interests of being able to deliver safe care. And it seems to me that in this situation, um, that didn't occur. And I would suggest that, I guess, potentially the failure to participate in a proper surgical checklist or a timeout to plan what is going to happen during the procedure, including the delivery of a, of a relaxant, a muscle paralytic agent, that may well have been because of ongoing animosity between those two individuals, that that, that very simple but a very effective surgical safety checklist wasn't being consistently applied because they didn't participate in it. So I think it's an an interesting example of where animosities between members of a team can get in the way of well-regarded and well-documented safety procedures that led to this outcome for the patient. Um, And and I guess over the years, uh, as I said, I haven't always got on with everybody at all, but I've, I've been really tried to work hard to make sure that the way I approach situations is certainly not going to inflame things. And, and, uh, and I know what buttons can be pushed for me. I know the sorts of things that send me ballistic. Um, and I take great uh, pride, actually, in making sure that I don't get triggered um, in the workplace. And I think that um, perhaps an underappreciation of the role of these interpersonal skills that some clinicians have, um, I think it can be quite hard to convey. Not all clinicians understand that you don't have to go to charm school or anything like that, but I don't think all clinicians understand um, that uh, these interpersonal, these non-technical behaviours and skills are important for patient safety. It's not just all about the technical performance. And certainly rudeness or animosity within a team um, can diminish other team members, you know, their cognitive skills, threatens dysfunction of the team, as as we saw in this case, really, and certainly does threaten the safe execution of care delivery. Absolutely, Stephen. Gosh, you've covered quite a a few points there. Um, I mean, 
we we are, I hope, aware of how we need to behave civilly to our patients and, and communicate with them and listen well. But you've just pointed out how animosities between members of the team can be dysfunctional and can, as in this case, also lead to significant patient harm on occasion. Yeah, I think um, you're right. I mean, learning to respond calmly and respectfully towards a rude or angry patient is actually a key professional skill, uh, you know, and making a deliberate decision to actively listen and remain civil and calm can certainly help de-escalate a spiralling situation. And in my mind, the same can be said for responding to a staff member or a colleague. The same skill applies, in my mind, as whether you're dealing with a patient. Um, so, I mean, some of you, some of the listeners might be familiar with the different models that talk about conflict resolution. One of the best known ones is this uh, Thomas Kilman model for managing conflict. And, and it does actually draw out some interesting points. It, it, it talks to mixtures of assertiveness and cooperation. Uh, you know, at, at one, one end of the spectrum, I guess, is competitiveness um, so that's be you know very assertive, but not much cooperation going on there. And then at the other end of the spectrum is is being accommodating, so allowing things to happen, not much assertiveness. Personally, I, having thought about this, I, I sort of fall into the collaborative section or sometimes the cooperative section. So I have a reasonable amount of assertiveness that um, over the years, but I do partner that or buddy that definitely um, with cooperation. Because at the end of the day, there's little point in winning an argument or a battle and end up um, delivering poor care to the patients who turn to us for care. So I guess that's been my, um, uh, you know, a driving principle for me. And I do try and, uh, with the juniors that I work with, I, I, we do have sessions on managing difficult conflict situations. And where I work in emergency medicine, the key conflict we have is when we make a referral to inpatient services, you know, to inpatient teams. And, uh, you know, at times we do get a pretty frosty uh, or downright rude response. And certainly, um, again, for the point of view of the patient, going off the rails and escalating yourself certainly never helps that situation whatsoever. There are some skills that we can bring to that. And over the years, I have actually been in a situation with a, a colleague that I was required to work with very closely in a leadership role, and we did not get on. It was quite apparent that we did not get on. We probably tried or I tried. I'm not sure whether he tried, I've got to say. Um, I tried for some months. And our, our disagreements and our conflicts weren't in front of patients, but they were in front of our staff. Yes. They were in front of the team. And eventually um, our leadership recognised this. Um, that we just weren't able to work together. And, in fact, we did go to external mediation um, where that individual and myself, uh, you know, had had a professional mediate us and, and clearly articulate and, and have us agree to the parts of the the leadership in the, that role in emergency medicine that I would deliver and the parts that this other individual would deliver. And you know what? It actually worked. We were able to get on with our jobs. We didn't end up having uh, Christmas drinks together, um, but we were able to get on our jobs and we didn't have that conflict in front of staff, which can be so damaging. Absolutely. Quite, have, have quite an impact on the team, but in this case, uh, on the patient. So I, I'm interested there, a few things you've said, Stephen. Being aware of our hot buttons, what, what can push our hot buttons? You've talked about 
professionalism and uh, civility as well. Um, and you've uh, you've mentioned the conflict resolution model, where basically that model, I, I think you said, was it was a sort of a, a continuum from assertiveness through to accommodation, and and I guess you want to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it's a really it's a spectrum. I mean, on on one level of the model is degree of assertiveness, high or low, and then the other the other axis, if you like, is um, uh, cooperation, high or low. So if you're high assertiveness and low cooperation, that's you're, you're sort of competing. <laughs> you know, that's that sort of it's quite an interesting model, Thomas Kilman model for managing conflict, and people tend to have different types of management styles or conflict resolution styles that they choose to adopt. So, I mean, in this case, you you started out asking us, I wonder why they were working together. I, I can envisage situations where maybe it's a very small unit and, and there's not much choice uh, in terms of surgeons and anaesthetists, but if possible, I guess that's one way around it if one finds that, that you can't work with somebody else if it gets to that extreme. Um, is is an op an option to to just not work with them? Yeah, I think that if you've got that option and you've uh, you you know you you have done your best to be able to work professionally and civilly um, with that individual, and it's just not possible, then probably if if you're able to, it's probably best to avoid the situation to you know choose not to work with them obviously i don't know what the situation was um with uh, uh dr murray and mr smith um but uh, there are many situations where you can avoid and if you can't um I, again it's it, it don't bring yourself down to the tone of the other individual i think it, it's very important to uphold your own standards of respect civility and communication because i think it's important to remember that you can choose you can make a choice the way you're going to respond. You can either respond with escalating anger and, and end up shouting and getting nothing done, or you can pause and recognise that you're in that situation or right on that, that edge and respond calmly and respectfully. When you feel yourself getting sort of dragged down potentially to a lower level of behavioural communication, make the effort to, up, you know, to up, uphold your personal integrity and your professionalism. And sometimes... I've had to be in a situation where I've said, listen, I don't think our conversation is benefiting the patient at all. Uh, can we both agree to reset and restart? Or will I come back to you a bit later? So simple things like that can sometimes take the wind out of the sails and actually go, yeah, oh, you're right. We are advocating for the patient here. And that simple reset can work quite well. So once you're aware of what your hot buttons are, you can take that breather at that point, is that what you're saying, basically, and, and start to respond rather than reacting in the moment? I think that exactly right, John. I think that uh, that recognition that you're, you're getting frustrated, you're feeling uh, a little bit angry, you're about to fire back with some other retort or remark, that's the warning sign for you. And uh, and it's that time you really do need to, you know, the old count to 10 um, to pause, respond. And, and at times say, listen, this is, with all respect, this isn't getting us anywhere in, in, in terms of delivering great care to our patient. That's what I called you about. Can I call you back in a few minutes or can we reset? That's what I find when I'm making referrals. Really, really helpful, Stephen. I'm wondering, you've mentioned civility. Uh, and this is obviously a case of gross incivility. Uh, is, is civility something wider than just 
not being nasty and not bullying people and and uh, having being nice to people what, what is what is civility in the health workforce yeah, it's a great, it's a really good question, John. And um, most of the listeners are probably aware that there's a there's a lot of work going on, um, or has been completed around both the impact of incivility, but also the impact of civility. So negative and positive, respectfully, um, and, and the impact of incivility in terms of individual and team performance in clinical environments is increasingly acknowledged. And it's supported by a really a, a quite a wide and growing evidence base. And, you know, there is now pretty good evidence that um, rudeness or incivility in the workplace, it reduces individuals' performance. It reduces a team performance. And there's a few studies that show the impact on diagnostic performance and procedural performance. Um, it reduces help-seeking behaviours, which is one of the characteristics of effective teams, it also reduces information sharing behaviours. And it's actually help seeking and information sharing that is actually what make teams work so well. So if exposure to incivility or rudeness is blunting those um, behaviours, then the team is diminishing in its its ability to perform. Um, certainly there's some er there's some information around its impact on errors um, in, in patient care, uh, increased patient complication, a reduced willingness for, for team members to speak up if they don't feel safe in an environment to speak up and raise a concern. Um, so if someone's being rude and abrasive, it makes it less likely that someone is going to raise a concern because they have a fear for their own personal safety. It's a real, a really, a, a, a potent, um, a potent, I've lost the word, a potent um non-promoter of speaking up, if Absolutely. you like. And, and I guess um, overall, working in a health system, you know, if uh, I, my view is that rudeness and incivility is contagious. Now, so if it is allowed to flourish in an organisation, that is, is the, the leadership or the unit head or whoever it might be allows that to flourish, it actually starts to be infectious and other people will adopt rudeness and rude and incivil behaviours, and that then has a consequence on workers' well-being, and mental health, and staff turnover, and absenteeism, and a range of different things. And what's interesting to note is that there is an association between a climate of civility and the commitment to safety and actual safety practices in an organisation. And what I mean by that is that if an organisation has you know, a high level of civility, and that's the normal way that organisation, people in that organisation behave. They say, you know, good morning. They learn people's names and use them. They say thank you. All of those sorts of very, very simple um, civil behaviours, if that is part of the workplace norm, then these organisations have been shown to be more attentive to safety practices, more likely to follow policies and procedures, more likely to wash their hands, comply with checklists relating to safety um, uh, and, and as probably possibly as we saw, saw you know more likely to comply with a surgical um, timeout and conversely organizations with a lower level of overall civility or permission where incivility is rife actually conversely have a lower engagement in safety producing behaviors it's an interesting phenomenon so 
I think what you're telling us is that civility improves safety and incivility increases errors and 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 reduces safety. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and, and actually, one of my colleagues, is, uh, Lynn McKinley, has done a lot of work in this area and has produced a number of resources, one of which is available um, on uh, for MPS members. Um, that was a uh, it was a. a a web webinar exactly on civility and its impact on medico legal um, risk. We'll put the details of that, uh, Stephen, in the in the notes for this podcast. Uh, th- that's really good. I think we've covered uh, a lot coming out of this this case. And interestingly, what you said there about leadership and about the importance of uh, civility uh, and and leaders making that clear. I guess both by policies and so on, but also by example. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think that you know, there are a number of things that leaders can do to promote civility um, in the workplace. And uh, absolutely, the first one is to lead by example uh, and, and actually to seek feedback about their own behaviour and how they, how they are perceived in the workplace so they can continue to role model the types of behaviours that they want their staff members um, to emulate. Um, I think there's also something to be said for thinking about, well, how do we recruit people? Um, there is a, a, a well-known article in Australia anyway, um, published in the Australian Financial Review in 2018, that the headline was, don't hire jerks. So there is some work, <laughs> so there's some work that can be done by, um, by organisations to actually put some effort in to make sure they're not employing someone who is likely to have those sorts of behaviours. You know, that is that is background checks and those things. It's it's a lot easier to put that work in before hiring someone than dealing with the difficult consequences of, of mistakes when they ultimately do become a significant problem. And then, of course, what leaders also can do is set the standards and expectations, you know, organisation-wide values, perhaps a code of conduct, a compact or a contract that outlines behavioural expectations of staff. I think all of those things are important and that they can contribute to uh, the culture of an organisation and an engaged workforce that are, that are keen to deliver safe care. One thing that is just occurring to me, Stephen, around the world, and of course this podcast may be listened in, in many different places, I think these days the stress not just from COVID, but also from workplace and work sh- workforce shortages, uh, which seems to be the norm in many different health services. How do people, I mean, in those situations, it must be more difficult to maintain civility when you're under huge press. I mean, you working as an emergency physician must be a- aware of this. Is that a factor? Do you think? I, I do, John. I think um, if you are uh, if you are overloaded and uh, uh, you know emotionally exhausted, and some of the things that define burnout, some of those elements, burnout. then I think that your behaviours are at risk of changing. And we do talk about um, uh, you know long term drowning in in adrenaline and cortisol eventually makes you sick, but before that, it makes you stupid and unfriendly, which is a, you know, a reasonably well-known quote from Professor Peters. Um, and I think, so I think that's true. I think that individuals, or many of us suffering from a lot of workplace stress, a lot of overwork 
and perhaps in an environment that is not conducive to flourishing um, are, are likely to have you know likely to have unprofessional behaviors and unless they're consistently right. addressed um, and managed and there is some thought about well what is going on in the workplace to manage that imbalance of of demand and resource what's going on you know is someone looking into the climate that we're working in then those behaviors are likely to be unchecked Another challenge for uh, for our health system and for our leaders as well. Stephen, it's been a fabulous uh, discussion here. You've covered a, a great deal of ground. And any closing remarks you want to make? Uh, I guess uh, first thing is uh, if you if you have to work with somebody that you really don't get on with, uh, you've actually got to pay a lot of attention to your own personal. Oh responses and that does require work we talked about recognizing when your buttons are being pushed I think that's extremely important um, and you know maintaining your own professional integrity your own courteous and respectful behaviors and not not being taken down a spiral of um, of rudeness I guess is the most important thing so I think it, it is all about personal uh, and and professionalism and then again their organizations also have a role in being able to set the standards around um, the way people interact with each other um, in, in a healthcare organisation. Because what we've seen in the case that we've presented, but also in the literature, is that failure to do that, to allow unprofessional behaviours and rudeness um, to flourish in an organisation is associated with errors and poorer safety. Thank you so much, Stephen. Great to, to be talking to you again. My pleasure, John. Well, we can certainly learn a lot from the story of Mr. Smith and Dr. Murray. Professionalism, civility and incivility. For the individual being aware of what pushes your buttons and when they are being pushed, being careful to respond carefully rather than reacting in the moment. And then for the organisation and leadership, leading by example as well as having clearly stated values, policies and procedures about civility because it is critical for patient safety, while incivility increases errors. If you're a member of Medical Protection Society, you can learn more about the impact of incivility and of burnout, and ways to address these through our workshops and webinars. Resources will be listed in the episode description. With that, we reach the end of today's podcast, When Doctors Disagree. If you're new to podcasts, maybe listening for the first time, make sure you subscribe to the channel to make listening in the future easier. For more information about Medical Protection Society, or if you're already a member and would like a certificate for listening, please look for details in the episode description. Until the next time, Matewa.